Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Since anthropogeny is not a normally common word, although many people are getting to know it, I hope, uh, it is the investigation of the origin of humans. And we do that writ large. And I think you'll see today that uh, what you're going to we're talking about today is not the actual depth of origin of modern humans, but it does have implications for how that came about. Our complete card emission statement, which we've worked on, is to use all rational and ethical approaches to all verifiable facts uh, from all relevant disciplines, and you can tell as just from us there are a lot of relevant disciplines, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomena. We try to minimize complex organizational structures, and hierarchies, we try as best we can, and to avoid unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. So we try to keep it simple. We try to keep it simple. I do want to thank some people because without them, uh, we wouldn't have CARTA and we wouldn't have um, these symposia that we've been able to carry on. Our main supporter is the Harold and Lila Mathers Foundation, and I would especially like to thank Dr. Mr. Jim Handelman, our exe- the executive director, and his wife Susan. I'd also like to thank Annette Merle Smith, who could not be with us today. Now, I will turn this over to the co-chair of today's symposium, Dr. Evan Eichler from the University of Washington. So it's a pleasure to welcome all of you here today. I want a special thanks to the speakers that have come um, from far and wide to make this symposium an event. We came up with this idea about, uh, about nine months ago, and I can tell you that it came from really a mixture of, of new data that was emerging, the enthusiasm from complete sequencing of genomes, and the fact that it's been almost 10 years since we've had a human genome reference, the ability to start to kind of peer into the diversity that exists in different continental groups, and to understand that really from a functional perspective is why we're all gathered here today. So this symposium is organized in two parts. The first half will be really kind of exploring uh, the nature of genetic diversity in different continental groups. And we're going to hear some excellent lectures uh, focusing on Africa, South America, and Europe, and what we've learned about human genetic diversity just in terms of neutral genetic diversity and its implications. We're also going to hear from Pascal Gagnon regarding kind of where we fit with respect to other ape species or other species related to humans. And I think he'll leave you with the impression that we're quite shallow genetically as a species. He'll also give us a little bit of a primer in terms of, uh, so everybody's on the same page in terms of what we mean when we, when we talk about genetic variation. The second half of the symposium will focus more on really the, some of the functional implications in terms of uh, brain development, in terms of immune response, and we'll end with some um, discussion regarding the, the impact this might have in terms of society. So without further ado, I'm going to start this, officially start the symposium with our first speaker, uh, Pascal Gagnon. He is an assistant professor here at uh, UCSD. A little bit of background about uh, Pascal. He comes originally from Switzerland, where he got his PhD from the University of Basel in uh, 1998. He was a postdoc from 1998 to 2003 with Ajit, where he worked on uh, glycobiology, and in 2003 became an assistant professor and is actually a co-director of CARTA. So for those of you who are familiar with, with Pascal, uh, he is a very passionate and enthusiastic uh, individual, and he is f- fervent about his interest in terms of, of 
of genetic diversity, particularly within the great apes, as, as how, and how that relates to uh, human diversity. So you'll hear a little bit about that today. But what I think he's, he promised, he was going to give us a little bit of a demonstration, um, some props, and so I look forward to that. So, Pascal. So the title of, of uh, this... And I'd like to put human biodiversity in, in a context of our closest relatives. And so the title of, of my presentation is Great Ape Biodiversity. And you see in a, in a moment why great ape is hyphenated. So this is a panel of uh, great apes. They're very diverse, kind of not, uh, not unlike ourselves. But keep in mind that there are at least four species, possibly six species on this panel. So there's something a bit different with regard to uh, phenotypic, the looks of these, of these species and individuals. Unlike ourselves, who have uh, colonized most of the planet, great apes have very restricted ranges. In fact, they live where people are few, and at night it is dark. If you look at the dark places, that's where you find chimpanzees in the tropical forests of Africa. You find bonobos, the sister species of chimpanzees, uh, south of the River Congo. You find gorillas in the west and in the east, very restricted ranges for the eastern populations. And the only Asian great ape, the orangutan, lives on the island of Borneo and Sumatra. These uh, ranges are very narrow, and there is some surprising genetic diversity given how narrow these ranges are. If we turn on the light and ask about the history of these populations, uh, one place one would like to look is for fossils. Well, I'm afraid to, uh, to mention that fossils for great apes are extremely few, especially in Africa. The situation is a little bit better in, in Asia where there are some very old uh, 12 million year plus uh, entire skulls like Shiva, Shiva Pithecus in Pakistan, and then collections of teeth from things called Lufeng Pithecus in uh, southern China or northeastern Thailand, Karat Pithecus, named after the city of Karat, uh, and then much later, ancestral orangutans that lived in southern China and Vietnam, some of these with quite complete crania and postcranial skeletons. But that's pretty much where the story ends. Uh, so you can notice that all these fossils are far away from current, the present-day range of orangutans. In Africa, the situation with regard to great ape fossils is dismal. We have two sets of teeth, a few from a 10-million-year-old orangutan-like creature, and then four teeth from a chimpanzee, half a million years old, both of these well outside the range of where great apes currently live. So if you are to understand the history of the biodiversity of our closest living relatives, you really have to work with living populations and the genomes within them. So I'd like, like to start with a more distant relative, uh, the orangutans. I just mentioned they live on two different islands, the island of Sumatra and Borneo. Can you tell the Sumatran and the Bornean orangs? Probably not. That's the answer that most people, including experts, tell us. Some genetic uh, data indicate that they separated over a million years ago. But there has been some uh, interesting uh, subsequent contact between the populations. A few words about their biology. So that's the distribution. In green, the Sumatran orang with a tiny population, extremely sad, highly endangered species, surrounded by big cities and lots of people, growing populations, deforestation, and so on. Uh, you have the Sumatran uh, orangs here, strictly arboreal, uh, living kind of mother offspring units, not really social, though some recent data from Sumatra indicates these guys can gather in pretty big groups. They have an interesting mating system that may be related to their ecology in a sense. The, the males are about twice as big as the females. They don't have social groups, stable social groups to speak of. You have these large males distributed in the landscape. To woo females, they sing and they wait. 
Then you also have small males that don't have flanges. And the next picture should show up. This, so this is a male who looks like, like an immature male and is represented here with these three little, little male symbols. These guys roam and force copulate. They don't wait and sing. So you have two stable male strategies to pass on genes to future generations, one involving female choice of big singing males, and the other one through forced copulation that uh, passes genes on through a completely different phenotype of male. Some people have uh, proposed that this has to do with the very poor food quality of some of these seasonal monsoon forests in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a striking difference from all the other species. How might this affect the genetic diversity? In terms of dispersal, both males and females disperse. The, the few times orangutans come to the ground is when great males meet and fight. And this very often leads to very brutal fights, uh, sometimes with deadly outcomes on the ground. The next species, uh, the gorillas. Again, can you tell western from eastern gorillas? Maybe mountain gorillas? In fact, mountain gorillas are t said to be quite easy to recognize because of their long hair. However, there are some eastern lowland gorillas that live at high altitudes and also have long hair. So again, a lot of variability, but not so clear cut in terms of geographic distribution. Gorillas, again, uh, have uh, tight, uh, very narrow ranges, especially the, the eastern populations. The largest population of gorillas that are probably still over 100,000 are in the Congo Basin, in uh, Cameroon and Congo and Gabon and so forth. And then there is a tiny little population of gorillas called the Cross River National Park, the Cross River uh, Gorillas in Nigeria, between Nigeria and Cameroon, only about 300 individuals remaining that may be uh, genetically a little bit distinct. Their mating system could be called a harem mating system with uh, the big, famous silverbacks surrounded by a lot of females having exclusive access. It will be the only male passing on genes for quite a while until another male comes in and displaces him. In this species, both males and females uh, disperse. Here's some silverbacks for you, one from, from the east, one from the west, and some uh, very appealing youngsters. Um, you can see the, the, the funky hairdo of the, the mountain gorillas, which makes them easy to tell. So they disperse both males and females, but quite interestingly, males are responsible for long-distance migration that may actually have played a role in keeping eastern and western gorillas somehow genetically uh, joined. And females disperse much more locally, probably along, uh, you know, informed by vegetation and uh, habitat quality. This leads us to our closest evolutionary relatives, the genus Pan, can you tell the bonobos from the chimps? Yes, I hope. There was a few bonobos interspersed in there. Can you tell the Western African chimpanzees from the East African chimpanzees 2,000 miles away? I don't think so. For your information, the top panel, a lot of diversity. These individuals are all part of one social group in West Africa. And they look quite variable to me. Uh, in fact, they're so variable that their color changes in the course of their lifetime. Chimpanzees are found in, the, on the, north, in, in uh, the tropics of Africa, in West Africa here, and then across um, equatorial Africa, but north of the Congo River. Bonobos are only found south of the Congo River. Uh, the, the estimates for head counts are around 200,000 for all chimpanzees, and probably by now less than 50,000 for bonobos. The mating system of chimpanzees consists of stable multi-male, multi-female groups, very different from the other two species, where there is 
differential contribution to the next generation by different males, both dominant and, and uh, uh, subordinate males. And dispersal in this species is, is mostly uh, through females. When females disperse at sexual maturity, they often display an interesting huge swelling that is more or less a honest advertising of the, of the ovulatory status. Uh, you see here a common or robust chimpanzee swelling being inspected by two males that are fascinated by it. Over here, you see a swelling in Lolita, one of the bonobos at the San Diego Zoo. You can, tell that, you can probably tell how much this is more oriented towards the front, quite different from uh, the robust chimpanzee. Uh, this comes in uh, when you give bonobos sugarcane, one of the things that can happen is that they share the sugarcane and mate. Uh, one thing that bonobos don't do so much is using tools, so that all of you are probably familiar with the different cultural traditions in chimpanzees that we've also talked about uh, in, in, uh, in, the se in this series. Some morphological differences between chimpanzees and bonobos is that bonobos have fused fingers. Uh, the second and third finger are, are fused on the foot. And bonobos have a lot of traits that look pedomorphic, or kind of like ju a juvenile ape. Even adults have a white tuft left on their tail. You only see that in baby chimps. And the whole morphology of the face is, is shorter. The head is smaller compared to the body. It's, uh, so there are clear differences between bonobos and chimpanzees. For uh, over 100 years, people interested in great ape and human evolution have been looking at anatomy and morphology of great apes. And they found out a huge body of information, but really it has misled us. It, has, it led to the notion of pongids, or great apes, as distinct from humans. It turns out this is not correct, because they're hominid just like us. And uh, now, with the information from whole genome sequencing, with a lot of different loci looked at in all these species, we can tell that the notion of pongid is wrong, but really we are all hominids. And not only that, but humans share a more recent common ancestor with both species of pan, pan troglodytes and pan paniscus, the uh, common or robust chimpanzee and the pygmy chimpanzee, than with any other of the great apes. And the, the branching order of this phylogeny, which is really a, a summary of successful breeding uh, between these species is, uh, is not contested. What, where we still have a lot of questions is with regards to the timing. When precisely were these branches? And how could this be that there is so much wobble in our estimates of branching point? Well, it has to do with the fact that a genome is huge. It consists of two times three billion base pairs, and each segment of the genome has a slightly different evolutionary history. So depending on which which piece of a genome you focus on, you will retrieve a slightly different hist uh, history. And I thought it would be a good time to illustrate to people who are not geneticists uh, just how vast a genome is. So my model of a human or an ape cell will be a tennis ball, which is 10,000 times the size of, let's say, a white blood cell. It's fuzzy. That's the glycocalyx on it. All cells are covered with glycans. And uh, it's not yellow, probably. But in fact, each cell contains quite a lot of DNA. At this scale, one haploid genome, which is one meter in your cells, would be 10 kilometers. So that's one haploid genome. We'll uh, put it here for now. And then the other genome is here. So these two things, and they fell on the other side, they fit into each one of your cells, which is quite a feat. Cells are very, very crowded. By the way, we now know that in you and me, these two copies differ by all over four million differences. 
So if, if you have an issue with diversity, you could, for example, start with yourself and start hating one of you, your haploid genomes <laughs> because it's in you, the diversity. So how does it fit in there? Well, one way it fits in there, and I have actually I have a slide if you can't see the... So that's, that's how much DNA there is in a cell. Of course, DNA is very, very thin, and it's highly compacted on histones, on proteins. And so this is my model of chromosomes. Would you please stand? Spools of different sizes. In the great apes, we have... Two pair, uh, we have 24 pairs of chromosomes. The last pair is the X and the Y chromosome. That turns into a female ape or into a male ape. And here is the slide to illustrate that. So with Photoshop, you can easily make a pair. That's just a haploid set of chromosomes. It turns out that just the packaging of your genome can be used to retrieve the same phylogeny. So if you analyze huge chunks of DNA packed around histones in your chromosomes, and you ask, where did which changes occur? You retrieve the same phylogeny that people studying anatomy have never gotten over, over 100 years. So there's information in the packaging as well. And the studies of genetic diversity in great apes and humans started with mitochondrial DNA, which is tiny. It's a 16 KB, so at this scale, at this scale, that's your mitochondrial, total mitochondrial genome. And back 10 years ago, when we got PCR to work on great ape DNA from the field, we would amplify 300, 400, 500 base pairs, which you wouldn't even see on a little string like that. So it was a tiny little window into the mitochondrial genome that's inherited from mother to daughter uh, of us and our uh, great ape cousins. And when we did that with a large group of people, many of them in the room here, uh, and for the first time put together a lot of individuals, mostly from bonobos and chimpanzees and gorillas. We didn't have many orangutans at the time. What was startling was that there seemed to be so much diversity in the apes and comparatively less in 800 humans collected in a sample from all over the planet. A few years later, with much more sequencing efforts, Swante Pabo's group looked at the X chromosome at 11,000 base pairs, so that's, you know, that's about the full length of this little ring. It's still not much compared to all your genome. And they retrieved a very similar pattern with you know, uh, more branch length here in the chimps and the gorillas and the orangs uh, and the bonobo as well. Sorry, they fell out here, but very little in, in humans. So overall, it looks like really all great apes are much more diverse than humans. Uh, how could this be? They are so restricted to small populations. We covered the whole planet. Something very different happened, and we started wildly speculating, well, you know, probably in order to become human, we had to go to a bottleneck. And there's all kinds of evidence indicating that humans, uh, in becoming humans, might have lost a lot of their genetic diversity. Well, later, uh, Anne Stone, who we'll talk in, in a few moments, looked at the Y chromosome. So that would be this chromosome here, and she didn't sequence the whole Y chromosome. That wasn't possible. At the, she just looked at a couple of sites on it to look at variability. And lo and behold, the same pattern uh, between uh, chimpanzees. So this is just uh, mutational steps between different haplotypes found on the non-recombining part of the Y chromosome in bonobos over here, and in chimpanzees, and 42 humans from all over the place, no variability whatsoever. Same pattern. So you know, that seemed to really indicate uh, there is a, a unique loss of genetic diversity in our species. Well, with better sequencing uh, machinery and much, much effort and huge collaborations, 
So several groups started looking at a whole range of targets where rather than focusing on, after having sequenced the entire mitochondrial DNA, they moved to the genome and started looking for diversity across all the chromosomes. Little chunks, sometimes 500 base pairs, 500 layers on each chromosome, or just randomly amplified chunks from throughout the genome. And that gives you a much more representative idea of how much diversity there is inside the entire genome. And so now the situation looks slightly different. It's still true that most apes have more diversity than humans, about twice as much. Ironically, the Sumatran orangutan, of which there are less than 7,000 individuals left, have almost four times as much diversity than all humans. They will go, almost certainly will go extinct in our lifetime. I mean, they're, they're just surrounded by people. Um, the only one that is different are the bonobos, the, the pygmy chimpanzees living south of the Congo, that seems to have even a slightly less variation than humans. And the, the stat here, pi is just nucleotide diversity. If you, randomly, if you take two, two pieces of DNA and compare them to each other and express the percent difference on average between all your comparisons. So what does this mean in terms of history? Of the, in order to get these estimates, you cannot just have one chimp, one bonobo, and one orangutan. You really need samples from fecal samples in the wild, ideally, or from large groups of captive chimpanzees and apes in, in zoos around the world. Uh, when you do the entire genome of one individual, what you can do is, is you can reconstruct some of their evolutionary history in terms of ancestral populations. As I mentioned, this does not get inherited in one chunk. Each little chunk tells a slightly different history. And by going around the genome and asking for this chunk, how far back do I need to go to a common ancestor? For the next chunk, how far back do I need to go for a common ancestor? If there is a lot of variability between the different chunks, it tells you that the ancestral population was large. And so people have done that, and the answer is, for most great apes, the ancestral populations were large. The width of this tree now, it's the phylogeny, the summary of the history of these species, but the width stands for effective population size, which is a construct in, in uh, population genetics. It stands for the number of breeding male and females in a population whose genetic diversity is affected by drift, by genetic drift and inbreeding to the same extent as the headcount population under consideration. You can thus reconstruct these ancestral populations, and what it tells you is that they were very much larger. Please. Thank you. Uh, in almost all cases. So uh, the co even the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees had a very large uh, ancestral population. What you can also do is more fancy models of diver divergence of populations with subsequent migration and continued exchanges. And what you then get a fuzzy picture. There is divergence. They are starting to speciate, but they still exchange genes. And some of the latest patterns that have been uh, generated from some such analysis indicate unidirectional gene flow, a separation between humans and a chimp bonobo ancestor, and two million years later, a hybridization with some, ge some genetics from the chimps coming back into humans. So in summary, uh, I wanted to tell you that most great ape populations cannot be characterized geographically just by their external appearance. Great apes have higher, about two times or more genetic diversity than humans, except for bonobos. Great apes have maintained large effective population sizes, these big, diverse gene pools, despite their restricted ranges. And interestingly, all three genera, pan, gorilla, and pongo, either have two species or two divergent, very divergent species. And uh, last and sadly, the only surviving representative of our genus, Homo, 
we are now rapidly contributing to the demise of all other hominids. And as an example, I show you the prediction for the forest cover in Borneo for 2020 compared to 1950. And I'd like to end by thanking the naked planetary apes like myself and uh, the Mathers Foundation, Annette Seymour-Smith, Tobias Deschner, Cheryl Knott, Tim Lehman, Tara Stornsky for good information on uh, great apes that I am less familiar with. Thank you. My name is Ajit Varki, and as the co-director of UCSD SOC Carter, it's my great pleasure to make a few closing remarks to this wonderful symposium. I would obviously like to thank the chairs and all the speakers from a, for a truly intriguing and thought-provoking series of presentations. And, of course, special thanks to our major sponsors, the Harold and Lila Mathers Charitable Foundation and Jim Handelman, the executive director, and Annette Merle-Smith. This afternoon, we have been treated to a fascinating feast of current information on the origin of the human species and our remarkable biodiversity. So it's said that truth is stranger than fiction. Who would have thought that all of us in this room, and in fact all of us on this planet, came from less than five or 10,000 individuals less than 100,000 years ago? So even while we celebrate the rich diversity of humans, I think we should, with Suante Pabo, realize that from the genomic perspective, we are all Africans, either living in Africa or in quite recent exile from Africa. <laughs> so in this regard, I cannot help but close with mention something that I came across last week, and that was a reminder about the upcoming U.S. Census. <laughs> Question number nine on the census form asked me to classify myself into this bewildering set of races. And uh, although I'm technically an Asian Indian, as you just heard from uh, Mike, um, that's really not a very good category. In fact, the part of India that I'm from has not even been tested. So um, my own ancestry probably involves ancient Dravidians, Indo-European invaders, immigrants from Syria, Chinese sailors, Arab traders, and who knows who else. So I feel that I must instead check the box uh, other. But then I have to make two choices. My first choice is my true ethnic identity, which is culturally westernized, anglicized, naturalized U.S. immigrant, Syrian Christian Malayali from Kerala and the south coast of West India. <laughs> so I thought about this, and I think what I'm going to do instead, and I would encourage you to tell everyone to do this, let's, let's make, a, make a change here and just say human. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.